All right, good morning, everybody. If you'll turn your Bibles to the last two chapters of Job, that's where we'll be today. We're going to finish her up. This Friday at 7 p.m. is our um, How We Got Our Bible for Kids. I encourage you to join us for that. We're going to try to do it online as well, but it'd be better to be in person if you can. We've got books and everything for you, so for the kids. So come on out for that this Friday at 7 Teen night this month is Sunday the 20th, um, ages 13 to 17, uh, 4 to 7 p.m., and, and then we've got a flyer back there for you to go ahead and take a look and see what's going on there. Eventually in March, as we get closer, I'll have a time for you, but we're going to join up with um, Calvary down in uh, um, St. Joe, Calvary uh, Grace, and uh, have a prayer night with them at their place. So I encourage you, we're going to meet here at the church maybe and then kind of caravan on down or figure out a way to get everybody down there and whoever wants to come and have a good prayer and worship night with them. Uh, I think that's March 14th is what I had uh, thought about. So that's coming up. All right, let's pray. We'll get started. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the time we get to spend in it this morning. We pray that as JC prayed, your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our guide. Um, We want to be changed and transformed. We want to take note of what you speak to us this morning, that it's directly to us, that we take it personally, that we'd receive it for ourselves, and that we'd apply it to our lives. We thank you for Job's example and for writing it all out for us. Um, Help us to learn from it. In Jesus' name, amen. Job's done a wonderful job. (laughs) As someone who got nominated into something he didn't know he got nominated into, he did a wonderful job. You got to give him credit for that. He's a little humbled by these last two chapters as, as any one of us would be, I think. Um, when God shows up, I mean, you just don't expect them to show up. And, and it's funny what we say when, when we don't think anybody's listening, but when they're listening, we kind of change our tune a little bit. It just focuses, focuses us a little bit better. I think that's why he wants us to always be looking for his soon expectant return. I think he always wants us that way in our hearts because it causes us to live in such a way that we wouldn't live maybe thinking he's not coming. He is coming. We know that he is. We don't know when. It could be hundreds of years from now. It could be tonight or today. But knowing that it could be today, it causes me to live a different way. Um, Causes me to live for eternity caused me to focus on what's important. And so in this lesson today, in this, I think we'll learn a lot. I did. Um, I mean, all of 41 is all about the dragon and um, this extinct creature that, um, well, I hope he's extinct. I don't want to see him if he isn't. Um, Some say maybe Loch Ness is still out there or something, but this is a sea creature called Leviathan who's um, in the, in the King James's, referred to as a dragon and it's it's amazing it's you know we just assume it's folklore we assume it's all uh um not mystical uh <laughs> greek and 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 all uh mythological that's the word i'm looking for and uh and then we see god talking about it like like there's a lot of them and there was a lot of them on earth and it's like okay and you've got a decision to make For a lot of people, this is a decision moment for them to read something like this in scripture. That's a quote from God. You've got to come to the the conclusion that this is just a wonderful piece of literature that man wrote under the pseudonym of God, you know, that God wrote this, or this is real and it happened. 
and this is who it is, and there were dragons. We look through all the civilizations and all the histories, and we see dragons almost in every single one of them. It doesn't matter what era. I mean, all of them have this. And it's like, ooh, really? Wow. I don't know why we find it so hard, just because we've never seen one, right? I'm thinking, suppose giraffes went extinct, right? And a thousand years from now, we try to describe that to somebody. We've got these pictures of these things, you know? No, no, no. It wasn't like a horse at all, okay? No, it had a neck. I, sorry, 20-foot long neck. Yeah, right. You know? How would you react if we should describe some of the things that we have, you know? Um, I don't know. Interesting stuff. That isn't the point, though, of chapter 41. We could spend a lot of time on dragons and, and dinosaurs and I believe both are contemporary with man. So if you're like visiting and you're like, <laughs> you really don't believe that, do you? I absolutely believe that dinosaurs and dragons existed and they were contemporary with man. So you can start, do you just figure that out on your own right now? I guess it's my last time coming here. Or, <laughs> or give it some thought. Just give it some thought. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's just, if I believe everything else in scripture and I'm reading these things, it's, it, it, it's behooved me to believe this and accept it and, and wonder at it, of course, and be as stunned as anybody else as I'm reading this out loud. But how neat is that? I think we're really going to be shocked at what we see when we get to heaven and everything's restored the way it was. And we're going to see plants, ferns. I mean, we see fossils of ferns, you know, those giant ferns, like the size of this building, you know, kind of thing. And we're like, yeah, right. The whole earth was covered with stuff like that. It was tropical. We've got mammoths found up in the Arctic with, with food digesting still in their stomachs of green, and they died right in their spots. So nothing was the way it was before. I think we're really going to be shocked. And so this isn't that shocking to me. I mean, to say it maybe from the pulpit and say it out loud is a lot, oh, great, fire-breathing dragons at church at Calvary Chapel this morning. Well, I don't know. I'd be kind of disappointed after we read some of the creatures that he's made in heaven in Revelation. I really don't think dragons are an issue anymore. But that's, that's, I mean, when we see a cherubim, we're going to be like, and it, it's not the, not the Valentine's Day ones that we're going to be still fat, chubby babies, you know, shooting arrows at people. These things are some amazing creatures. So the point of this is this is probably more than anything, a metaphor, not, not a metaphor. It's an actual creature. Don't get me wrong, but God is dealing with Satan without dealing with Satan. Because at the beginning, we had the privilege of having a conversation or being privy to a conversation held in heaven about Satan wondering if he could touch Job or not. And that's just, but nothing's been explained to Job yet, nor will anything be explained to Job. Job leaves this book in mystery, not knowing that that conversation took place. But as we read some of the attributes of this dragon and has how God chooses to spend an entire chapter describing this creature and giving Satan many of the same attributes, it's hard not to see that he's trying to say, you know what, you can't beat this creature. You certainly couldn't have beaten Satan, but you did with my help is the idea. So verse one, can you draw out Leviathan with a hook? Or snare his tongue with the line which you lower? Can you put a reed through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many supplications to you? Will he speak softly to you? Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him as a servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you leash him? 
or your maidens. Everybody knows, of course not, not this thing. You steer clear of this thing. He's a scary thing. This Leviathan, this dragon's been brought up several times in scriptures in Psalm 74, verses 12 through 14. For God is my king of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. Thou didst divide the sea by thy strength. Thou breakest the heads of the dragons in the waters. Thou breakest the heads of Leviathan in pieces and gavest him to be meat to the people inhabiting the wilderness. So God has dealt with this thing in the past, and this is a common uh, sight for these people, a terrifying sight, but God can certainly defeat him. Psalm 104, 26, there go the ships. Uh, there is that Leviathan whom thou hast made to play therein. You know, something you didn't want to see when you're out in your boat is this thing lurking around. Isaiah 27, 1, in that day, the Lord with his sore uh, and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan and pierce the ser- piercing serpent even Leviathan, that crooked servant or serpent, excuse me, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea, Um, an actual creature and something to be feared. As we go through this chapter and we describe this creature and God uses him in many different ways, I believe in Job's life. Job is still um, pleasantly surprised that God has been present with him this entire time. I think that's um, what he's getting at here. He's been describing some of the creatures that you can't explain. He started with the stars. You can't explain what's going on in space and all that. Uh, I did that, God says. And then, so let's bring it a little lower. You can't even describe some of the deer and some of their habits that they do here, but I do that. And I understand all those things. And so then we talked about behemoth. We talked about um, that dinosaur of old behemoth who's not a hippopotamus, who's not an alligator um, based off the description. Something much bigger, something much more brawny and terrifying and yet, vegetarian and, and all. Um, and God was saying, that's, that's my creation. That's, that's my pet, basically. Nothing for me, impossible for you. So he moves on to this Leviathan that is a terrifying beast, um, that isn't a friend. <laughs> it's not friendly at all. Um, and says, this is mine also. This is something that's not beyond my reach. Um, I created it. I'm capable of doing all sorts of things. In fact, um, Satan is described as this, but you, Satan is described as a dragon. That's how terrifying Satan is. And so he uses this creature to use as an example, you know, uh, that guy's as brave as a lion is the idea. Well, Satan's as crazy as a dragon kind of thing. That's the idea. Um, And so he's described that way. And so as he continues to go through this with us, Job um, is being humbled, um, encouraged, loved on, taught. I mean, there's a lot going on here between God and Job and Mrs. Job, she's here too, you know, and his friends are all there. Um, They're learning something here. It's a teachable moment for them. And it can be for us um, if we receive it. When God begins to describe these things and the rhetorical questions, he wants us to meditate on those things a little bit. What, What other things aren't you concerned about that you know I have in hand? And can I have everything else? Um, If I can control this thing, if I can control behemoth, if I can control the stars, if I can control and I have created all these things, do you not think that I can handle your life? Do you not think that I'm trusted with that? And that's the idea is you can trust me with this. And he wants Job to trust him without having to explain to him chapter one. I want you to believe me, Job, because there's a lot of things going on, but I don't have to explain everything to you. Can you just trust me? 
Am I worthy of their trust? And so that's why he does these things. Will your companions, verse 6, make a banquet of him? Will they apportion him among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hand on him. Remember the battle, never do it again. Indeed, any hope of overcoming him is false. Shall not one be overwhelmed at the sight of him? No one is so fierce that he would dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand against me? That's the comparison right there. Now some say, well, this has got to be some kind of alligator or something like that. No, they had alligator boots back then. They weren't afraid of alligators. Took about six guys with a bunch of spears, but they can get an alligator. It's not a major deal for them. I mean, we all watch Crocodile Dundee, right? I mean, he could take them by himself. It's not not an issue. This is an issue. This is a, this is a, you would never tangle with this thing. And so then he follows it up. And this is the point of verse 10. Who then is able to stand against me? Job, I had this well in hand. I have Satan well in hand. You, on the other hand, do not have Satan well in hand. I think that's a good lesson for us this morning is to keep that distance from Satan. We have scriptures and, 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 and we own them. I mean, he gave them to us that we have power and we have authority in the name of Jesus Christ. And I'm, I'm all for that and believe that with all my heart. And yet I don't go picking fights just to see if that stuff works. You know, of course the angels will keep Jesus from dashing his foot across the stone, but he still doesn't jump off the top of temples to see it happen. I don't think that's for us to do. Of course, Uh, serpents and deadly poisons won't harm us as we're doing the gospel and sharing it around the world, but we don't do it on purpose. I don't climb into a bag of rattlesnakes to see if I can squeeze my way out, you know, or down some strange Kool-Aid just to see if I can, my body can withstand the poison. That's foolishness. That's tempting God. Likewise, when it comes to Satan, it's just a nice, nice habit to keep Jesus in between you and him. Always, always. Jesus can deal with him. We remember the seven sons of Sceva who tried to cast out demons in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, and that didn't work out so well for them. Uh, they really needed Jesus, and they didn't have him. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has preceded me that I should pay him? Everything under heaven is mine, including Satan. This is a, a rebuke of Satan. Satan, if we don't understand this, has lost this battle. We don't have that conversation. We don't get that written down for us. We don't see um, Satan sulking away and then Satan slithered off because he had been defeated. by. We don't have that uh, closure here. This is it, though. What he's describing here is the closure. You can almost see him looking directly at Satan. Everything under heaven is mine. I even own you. I control all of this. You're no, I'm, not, I'm a force to be reckoned with, God says. None of you have a, a chance against me. And that's the point of this. If you wouldn't even touch Leviathan, understand that Satan is mine as well. I will not conceal his limbs, his mighty power, or his graceful portions. Who can remove his outer coat? Who can approach him with a double bridle? Who can open the doors of his face with his terrible teeth all around? His rows of scales are his pride, shut up tightly as with a seal. One is so near another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They stick together and cannot be parted. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. 
Out of his mouth go burning lights. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke goes out of his nostrils as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals and a flame goes out of his mouth. Strength dwells in his neck and sorrow dances before him. The folds of his flesh are joined together there, firm on him and cannot be moved. His heart is as hard as stone, even as hard as the lower millstone. I don't know what that has to do with anything, except that if he's describing Satan, that's an excellent description. Satan is a roaring lion. He's a dragon. He's someone who goes out to destroy everything he can touch. He has a heart of stone. He has no feelings for you at all, except hate. He has no feelings for me as, as well. All he wants to do is destroy What I find interesting about these two chapters is that God saw fit to bring Job into the battle with him. Job spent all of this book, and so did his friends, complaining about the situation they found themselves in. That maybe it was because of something bad that you were brought into this battle. Maybe you did some kind of sin that's hidden. You must have, because nobody goes into this battle. And they they treat this, and God is trying to straighten this doctrine out, or this heart out of these guys. You treat being asked to come into the battle against evil, which is what's happened here, as if it was some kind of punishment and not an honor. I think about um, not a Vietnam era guy. Um, That was my dad's era. Um, And the lotteries and the things I've read about and heard about, but never experienced having a card in my hand with a high number or a low number on it or whatever for the draft. And how pretty intimidating that was to hold something like some of you probably know exactly what I'm talking about and went through it. And I, I don't know. Um, And whether you believed in the cause or not makes no difference. It's just an example for today. It's not a perfect example because it's a man's war. But I don't understand the idea of a soldier not wanting to go to the battle. I don't understand that. A soldier that doesn't want to go into because of the cause and fight for the cause. I don't understand that. It doesn't make any sense to me. First of all, don't join. If you're going in the military for college and you have no interest in going into the battles, then don't join. That's, there's no honor in that at all. Um, and, and I know it's man's battles and I know it's man's wars and sometimes they have good outcomes and good purposes and, and sometimes you kind of wonder what the whole point was about all those things. I mean, I think we recently went through a withdrawal that about made most of us military guys spin our heads, you know, and are probably still spinning our heads here. Disappointment in leaders. Doesn't mean the cause wasn't just and noble at all. Just means it didn't end the way it should have because of somebody else's cowardice. That's all. When we sing songs in the Sunday school, which probably to a lot of onlookers, if it's your first time at church and you hear someone saying, I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery. And then we end up with, I'm in the Lord's army. To an unbeliever, that just sounds weird. You know, oh my gosh, they're in a cult. 
know, you've, you're indoctrinating children into God's army. What are they going to do? Are they going to crawl under wire out there with guns and stuff? No, we're preparing them for what we're up against. Our God, and if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ yet, or you're not a Christian yet, listen up, because this is what you're, this is essentially what you're doing. Our God that we worship and love is fighting evil all the time, all the time. And when I believe him and I join his side and I enlist in his army, I need to be honored when he asks me to join in the fight against this evil and not terrified or scared to death if he should choose me to fight in this. No, that's why I joined. I want to fight evil. I don't like evil. I love God. I love love, grace, long-suffering, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, joy. I love all those things, and that's what he fights for. And for me to sit back and say, please, 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 oh, I hope my number's not called. It doesn't make any sense to me. Job was nominated. Satan is wondering, as he's going through the earth, who he can terrorize, who he can kill, who he can cause to hate God, evil. God says, why don't you, have you ever considered my servant Job? He's my greatest warrior on the earth right now. There's none like him anywhere. He's your greatest warrior because you've given him a palace and you've given him a sweet life. You take those things away from him, and he'll be the worst warrior you've ever had. He'll, he'll curse you to your face. Morale is a tough thing in the military. It just is. And boy, you got to keep ahead of that morale issue. You just do. Rod, I bet you had a lot of issues with morale. And uh, some of you guys who are in leadership probably did too. It was the hardest thing. Once you started down that road as some of the low men on the totem pole and the grumbling and the complaining started, if you didn't get a handle on that, the whole company was just... You know, just like this. And you found yourself, you know, at odds. And you weren't a fighting force anymore. You had to deal with this before you could go anywhere else, you know, or do anything else. Our morale is our problem. It's not my job to boost your morale as a Christian. I'll come alongside you. I'll help you understand the situation. I'll give you as much information as I can that I know about this evil that we're up against. But it's up to you whether you want to join the battle and fight or not. It's up to you to keep your morale up and to keep your senses sharp and ready to go, to train, to read your Bible, to handle your sword in a daily way that you know how to use it when the time comes. Can't do any of that for you. You can lead by example. For Job, he has nobody. He is the top guy keeping, and those, these friends of his, those are the guys that he's been training and helping and trying to keep the morale. And all they can do is say, it's got to be, just talk about low morale, you know, beating him up, telling him it's his fault. He some, did something terrible. That's why things are going this way. God's trying to tell him through these creatures and through this conversation that, no, I chose you because you were the best and you won. It's not said here, it's not spoken here, but Satan has tucked his dragon tail and has been defeated by God and by Job being faithful not to curse God. He's walking with the Lord still. I hope everybody is 
um, thinking that way, at least. How do I avoid battle? How do I avoid problems in my life? How do I make it smooth? How do I avoid conflict? How do I avoid... I don't think you understand what you've joined. We've joined a battle, a war in this world of good versus evil. And every one of us should be looking for that fight. Absolutely looking for that fight every single day. In my marriage, I need to be looking for that fight to fight off evil in my marriage, to fight off evil in my home, to fight off evil against my kids, to fight off evil in our government and in our country, in our state and in our cities and in our schools and our workplaces. We are there. We are the only soldiers called to this. Nobody else is going to do it. If we don't answer this call of God, then it doesn't get done. It doesn't happen. We're called to this, to be the forgivers, to be the grace, to be the mercy, to be the love, to be the, to be like Christ, to be the ambassadors. We're called to this. We all came to Christ because we had a bunch of problems in our lives. Every one of us did. I mean, you hit that low spot. You realize you can't help yourself. You've been trying to help yourself and it has utterly failed. And so you come to God and you say, now you take my life and let it be consecrated. That's why a lot of guys join the military too. Oh man, I can't imagine. How many, how many waivers did you have to sign? Yeah, yeah, it's not quite a felony. So come on in, you know, straighten you out, you know. I look at Rod because he was a recruiter and then also Master Sergeant. I keep getting that wrong. First Sergeant in the National Guard. I mean, this is as high as you can go, you know, um, enlisted. And then a, some lieutenant can come up to you and tell you whatever, right? No, that didn't happen. But And so a lot of people will join the military just to, to I got to straighten my life out. I need someone to yell at me for a long time, you know. <laughs> and it works, kind of. It does. Anyway. You come to Christ because you know he got to, here, I'm just, I'm enlisting, take me, use me. But along with that is not only does he love you and want to straighten out your life and everything, he wants to make you the best warrior on the earth for good. And his causes are always right. His battles are always perfect. His wars are always won, by the way. You're on the right side of things. And he wants to use us. That's all he's telling Job. You can't defeat this dragon, but I can. And by you not cursing me, we have defeated him. He continues on as he described that heart of stone. Verse 25, when he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid because of his crashings. They are beside themselves, panicked. Though the sword reaches him, it cannot avail, nor does spear, dart, or javelin. He regards iron as straw, bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Sling stones become like stubble to him. Darts are regarded as straw. He laughs at the threat of javelins. His undersides are like sharp pot shards. He spreads pointed marks on the mire. So when he nestles down into the clay, he leaves an imprint. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. He leaves a shining wake behind him. One would think the deep had white hair. That's how fast he moves, and that's the kind of wake he leaves behind him. On earth, there is nothing like him, which is made without fear. He beholds every high thing 
He is king over all the children of pride. Hard not to put Satan in that category, isn't it? Because he is. He is. Job, we fought Satan and we won. We fought something that couldn't be beat and we won. Because I was with you. And Job understands that and that's why his response is so perfect for this moment. In chapter 42, verse 1, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes seize you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. It's a big difference between hearing about God and encountering him. It's a big difference. When Job had heard about the Lord and taught people about the Lord, he says something drastically different has taken place in my life from this moment, especially from you speaking to me right now. I've seen you and I abhor abhor myself and I repent. It's not like he was a wicked sinner and didn't know the Lord beforehand. I think that's important. He's just regretting everything he said and the way he said it and maybe his heart on the matter. He still was the most righteous man on earth. He still was the right man for the job. He never cursed God to his face. And yet he wishes he had walked through this trial a little bit better. I don't know if anybody in here can identify with that. I wish I'd walked through that trial just a little bit better a little less whiny, a little less complainy, a little more faithful, a little more trusting and knowing who he was, you know, and that's all Job is saying. Um, in Psalm 131, I think it's a, it's a pretty short Psalm, um, but it fits this perfectly, I think. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty, neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. I think that's where Job is right now in his heart. I mean, as a man, you don't like to consider yourself snuggled up on God's lap, you know. But when no one's looking, it's nice to snuggle up on God's lap, you know, and just find that place of rest, that place of peace. Like a child is just content, you know. We've had a lot of sick kids in our house this last week, and myself included, but you always feel bad for them because they just have such a hard time dealing with it. We as adults can figure it out, you know. But for kids, it's like why and ow and it's, it's hot again and I'm cold again. And you go through all these things with them and it's so nice to see them finally settle down from the fever and they begin to relax a little bit and they maybe fall asleep and um, we're watching TV or something or their heads on your lap. It's a nice thing and that's the picture we have here. At the end of this whole trial and tribulation, Satan's been defeated. God has showed up and said that I've never left you or forsaken you. I've always been here. Job is more happy with that than anything else. And he finds himself in that place of, I, I just, I don't even like to look at myself. I just, I repent, God, I just repent. 
I don't know exactly all the things I repent of, but whatever it is, I repent of all of them, you know, kind of thing. And it's a beautiful place to be. And that's it. That's the end of the conversation with Job. Now he's going to move on to his friends and talk about these guys. He's, he's going to just skip the last one we read, and he's just going to speak to um, Elphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. He's not going to talk about the other guy. He leaves him out altogether. Um, but he's got something to say to these guys about Job. Because as he's been sort of chewing Job out in these last three chapters here, his friends are sitting there. Now, they're not joining in or saying, aha, uh-huh, I told you, or anything like that. I don't think. I really do think these guys are all humbled at this little campfire. I picture him sitting around a campfire. I don't know why I see that, but I just picture him sitting there. I think they're all humbled at this point. So he turns his attention to them, to these friends, or so-called friends. And he says this, And so it was after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Elphaz, the Timnite, and he's the leader of this group, my wrath is aroused against you and your two friends. You have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take for yourself seven bulls and seven rams. Go to my servant Job and offer up for yourself a burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept him lest I deal with you according to your folly because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So a little vindication there for Job. I don't think Job is wagging his finger at them either. I'm pretty sure they're all just kind of looking at the dirt right now, um, as they should. But he's trying to restore Job's honor. This is the beginning of Job coming back. This is the start. And he starts with these three closest friends. You guys need to give him some sacrifice to offer up for you and ask him to pray for you because I'm not happy with you right now. Now Remember, this is pre-Jesus. So that's why we don't have a mediator. This is Job's going to be the mediator, much like Abraham was or like Aaron was. You know, um, they're the mediator. They're the guys that are going to pray. Melchizedek, he was a mediator also. Um, They're going to pray for other people. Um, And so we see him being asked to that. I I want Job to pray for you, which puts them back in the position where they should have been and the way they were from the beginning when he was their teacher and they were the students. You need to ask your teacher to pray for you because he's spoken what's right and you haven't. And it's a pretty broad brush. You know, we've mentioned, they said a couple things that were right on target, but when God looks at the whole, none of it was pleasing to him. When he writes the seven letters to the churches in the book of revelation, he's very careful to say some of these things I like, some of these things I don't like about you. And you need to change these things. And if you want to stay out of the great tribulation period, and you want to end up in heaven, you need to change these things. You know, he doesn't say that with these guys. He simply looks at them and says, you guys did not speak right by me at all. Mm. And so I want Job to pray for you. So no argument from these guys. Elphaz, the Temnite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite, went and did as the Lord commanded them. For the Lord accepted Job. Verse 10 is very interesting. And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Mm. Forgiveness is very, very, very important. And not only forgiveness, but to not pray against those who are against me, but to pray for those that were against me. That's when the healing began for Job. One of my first questions, and you 
I know you've heard this story several times. It's hard for me not to repeat. But one of the first questions I had as a new believer was, what if they don't ask for forgiveness? Do I have to give it to them? You know? It didn't stump my friend, but he kind of was irritated with the question because I don't think he had even thought about it before, maybe. But he gave a great answer as he just blurted it out. He wasn't, you know, he didn't lie. I said, well, they didn't ask for forgiveness. I don't have to forgive them then, right? Because they didn't ask for it. He's like, well, do you want to be forgiven or all the stuff you didn't ask for freedom? Well, yeah. He goes, well, there, there's your answer. He was a pretty blunt kid, and I appreciated that. Praying for people changes your heart towards them. Softens your heart, keeps it from getting bitter, keeps it from getting dark, holding things against people. There's a sentence in here that we're going to read that just absolutely drives me crazy, but that's because I need to learn this lesson right here that we're reading. It says later on that all of his friends were at his table again, and they were all consoling him for all of his losses. I'm like, what friends? You mean all the friends that abandoned you? All the friends that once you lost all your wealth and all your influence and all your power and all of your honor walked away and weren't there for you, and they're sitting at your table again? Did Mrs. Job invite them over or something, and you reluctantly came out of the bedroom? What is going on here? No, it's because he prayed for them. Job didn't let a root of bitterness get into him, get into his heart towards these people. This is just how it is. Job has realized in these two chapters and all these chapters that it's he and the Lord. It's always you and the Lord. Sometimes people will be alongside of you. Sometimes they won't. Sometimes we're surprised when they're not where you think they were or they're not alongside like you thought they were. But that's okay. It's you and the Lord. It's not meant to be a lone ranger situation, but he does want us to get to that place where my relationship with him, I can find contentment there. It's enough. Because once you find that contentment with God being your all in all, and maybe the only person in your life that understands what's going on sometimes, helps you to be able to pray for everybody else around you in a positive way for them, not against them, you know? And it keeps that bitterness down. It keeps hatred and everything that can just ruin your walk with him, your relationship with him. You know what it's like when you come home from having a bad day, how there's collateral damage at home. You're not mad at anybody in the house. They're just there, you know? And so they get the brunt. They get to hear it all. And they're like, oh man, you know? When you have that right relationship with God and you're in that place of contentment and peace, it's so much easier to just pray for people. And Job has that. And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then all his brothers, all his sisters, and all those who had been his acquaintances before came to him and ate food with him in his house I certainly hope they brought a dish. (laughs) A bare minimum, right? Hey, you're rich again. Let me come over and console you. What are we having? You know, kind of thing. Come on. Better brought a casserole or something. And they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. Each one gave him a piece of silver and each a gold a ring of gold. I don't think that's because that's what made him the man that he is. I think it was just an honoring thing, you know. 
trying to help out. It was a token, basically. This tells us something. Because he did lose all of his kids. He lost everything that he had. And although he's restored double and he's going to get 10 more children now, also that doesn't take away the pain of the loss of the first. And nor does God expect that to. These are not replacement children at all. These are additional and they're a blessing. And there's going to be grandchildren from them. And it's a wonderful thing. But that's why they're comforting him is because there's still, there's great loss for Job. He's gone through a very traumatic moment in his life and Mrs. Job's life. I don't know her name, so we're going to call her Mrs. Job. And so these people have come to comfort. And so all joking aside, I really think there's restoration taking place here between all these people. There's understanding. I think everybody was enriched by Job's story. That's a hard thing to nominate yourself for, to step out by faith, be rejected by all, have only God to answer to and to hope in, and then be be brought back from the dead, basically, and have everybody go, oh. I mean, it's one thing to be their teacher, a whole other thing to live by an example so they can all look and learn. So that's what God does sometimes. Thanks, Job, for fleshing that out for us. It's a tough thing. I think there's true restoration here. I think the friends and the family are back. I think they all wish they hadn't. I think that's where this consolation is coming from, this comfort for all the adversity that's been going on. We understand now a little bit better. Now, the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. For he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first, and he's just going through the daughters, Jemima. The, second, the name of the second was um, Keziah. And the name of the third was Kareen, I think, um, Hapok. Um, in all the land were found no women so beautiful as the daughters of Job. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers, which is also unheard of. You know, I just... This whole story, as he sees these gals and sees his sons and his new sons and the second batch, basically, that tells us something about Mr. and Mrs. Job's relationship, too. Yay, they made it, you know? They made it. Can you imagine trying to recover from something like that in your marriage? I, I don't know. I don't know that I've ever seen anything like that. I've seen a lot of marriages fail with the loss of one child. I have. Not a lot. I shouldn't exaggerate. I've seen three. Three. It is hard. It is a grief. There is a loss. There is a pain. There is a something that each is experiencing and, and is struggling themselves. And then to lift each other up in the process, you know, there's a lot going on there. Mr. and Mrs. Job made it through this. And they had 10 more children, you know, and their lives were... One of the commentators noted he was a prosperous man and a godly man at the beginning, but he's more prosperous and more godly in the end, which is the important part of this. Mr. and Mrs. Job are closer together than they ever have been. They understand each other. They've shared a grief. They've shared a suffering. They've shared something together that really nobody else can understand, and it forces them to look at each other with a knowing nod, Mm, you know, you know. 
I have those moments with Jenny sometimes, you know, it's like we just look at each other and say, yep, because she's the only one that understands it, you know. It's a wonderful moment. Although you wish the cause wasn't there at all. But you understand and you know that. And that's what's happened here. It's not written, it's not said, but she's there. She's given him 10 more children and they're different for sure. They'll never be the same, but they are closer to God and closer to each other. And finally, 16 and 17, after this, Job lived 140 years. So he was 70, we believe, when this all started. And he lived another 140 years afterwards and saw his children and grandchildren for four generations. So Job died old and full of days, which means he was ready to go. He was ready to go. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the story of Job. Thank you for laying it out for us. So much to learn and to glean from. Lord, we um, have, as believers, joined your team, your side. We've been saved from our sins. We believed on your son, Jesus Christ, for our forgiveness that is offered to us, and we accept all of that. We also, though, accept all the other things you said that didn't really have much to do with our salvation and all that. You encouraged us that if they hated you, they're going to hate us, and that if they... They're going to bring us before magistrates and councils and kings in handcuffs sometimes. Some of us are going to be martyred. That we have joined a side that is for good and not for evil and that we're called not to ignore it or hide from it, but to stand up for righteousness wherever we go. As the days get darker and we shine brighter, we pray for that boldness that we need to stand up for you for love, for grace, for mercy, for patience, for long-suffering, kindness, joy, faithfulness, gentleness, for self-control. All these things, God, we, we want to stand up for those things. This world desperately needs it. And if we don't, they won't see it. So it'll help us to shine brightly this week, to be bold for you, and to join the battle and to not be afraid to get into it. We want to fight evil. We want to be on your side. We want to be a part of this. So thank you for allowing us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. Be glad to pray with you. Otherwise, have a good rest of the week.